Hello, and thank you for listening to Literacy Matters. I'm your host, Cheryl Lundy-Swift. Today, I'm here with Dr. Gravity Goldberg. Gravity serves as a literacy coach to support teachers and school leaders. She has also authored several professional books, including Mindsets and Moves, Strategies that Help Readers Take Charge, and a really awesome book, Teach Like Yourself. Welcome to the show, Gravity. Thank you, Cheryl. So excited to be here. Awesome. You have written so many awesome uh, professional books. And one of the things that I think is a common thread throughout is your absolute dedication to helping teachers adjust their practices and their classroom routines so that they're more student-centered. I'd love for you to talk to us more about what it means to be really learner-focused. Yeah, I think that one of the most important things to think about that I remind myself all of the time is that my job is not actually to teach standards or curriculum, but to teach the humans that I'm next to each day. And the standards and the curriculum are really important, but never more important than the students. And so that looks like bringing a lens of curiosity each day into the classroom, being genuinely curious about my students' interests, Um, what their strengths are, what their next steps are, what their goals are, and using that information not as the cherry on top, but as like the heart of what I'm doing each day. And so that might sound like really pie in the sky, like, oh, we use our students' interest to drive instruction. But I think it's the difference between like having learning done to you and learning with you. And the idea is then students recognize that they are driving the bus, that they who they are matters, they feel seen and valued, and it's an integral part of all of the decision-making I do as a teacher. And I'm sure we're gonna talk more about how do we actually do that, but in essence, it's remembering each day that my job is to teach students, and that is what I show up for each day. So one of the things that when we were talking a little earlier, you mentioned that there's a difference between planning and preparation. Could you tell our listeners what you said? Sure. So early in my teaching career, like probably all new teachers, I spent lots of time planning. Like my lesson plans were extremely detailed. I probably spent more time planning than actually teaching the lesson. (laughs) And what I learned was when I do that, I was actually like a little too rigid, maybe missing opportunities to actually meet students where they were. I wasn't as curious because I was trying to stay focused on the pacing and the activities and the outcomes that I was actually in a lot of ways missing opportunities to actually teach those students. Mm -hmm. And when I started to shift to think about what if instead of thinking about planning every minute of what was going to happen, because these are humans and they never follow the best laid plans. Instead, I thought about it as preparation. Like, what do I need to do to feel prepared? And that might mean like developing my content knowledge in an area. Like maybe I really need to understand different text structures in a nonfiction text, or maybe I really need to understand the difference between a and a and what that looks like when we break like my own professional learning and knowledge building. Maybe preparation looks like really trying to like daydream a little bit and imagine what are the different possibilities for what this might look like in my classroom. Preparation, maybe most importantly, allows me to have a clear direction. I know where I'm going 
but to be flexible enough in the moment to adapt what that exactly looks like in the day-to-day moment to moment for the students in front of me. So, wow, that's a really great way to think about planning and preparation. So being well-planned, you want a well-planned lesson, but you want enough flexibility to prepare and allow your students to take you where you need to go. So for those teachers who struggle with letting go of control, um, what kind of advice would you give them? I mean, we could spend hours on this one, Cheryl. So I'm going to give just a couple of pieces of advice. The first thing that actually um, came to mind was um, some of Brene Brown's work and how she talks about you can't, like love and control can't coexist. That if you're trying to control someone, you actually can't be loving them in that moment. And so I do think part of being a teacher is loving each student. And so there's a part of me that just like philosophically needs to remember that. But from a very practical piece of how do I let go of some of that control? I think about it as like, I started my career as a special educator. And one of the things I learned really early on was that when we define success in these really small, narrow boxes, and we make it so highly controlled and rigid. We have a lot of constraints on what we want our students to do. That the number of students who can be successful is gonna get smaller and smaller. And the number of students who then are labeled and not successful is gonna get bigger and bigger. And Mm. that it's my job as an educator is to put the least amount of constraints in the biggest box of what success could be like so that more and more students feel successful. And so I've never met a teacher who's like, I don't want to love my kids. I don't want them to be successful. (laughs) And so part of us is just recognizing the desire for control is getting in the way of that. And so here's three tips that I have. I have actually some concrete things that I do because, hey, I I like a bit of control (laughs) like most of us. Um, I think a lot about how in order to learn everything and anything, the brain needs to have a, de- a some degree of challenge, of messiness, even though we don't love that. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing I do is I make sure I create a context where there's some amount of struggle. So instead of designing for control, I design thinking there needs to be productive struggle, not so much that students check out, but enough struggle that they actually have something intellectually to grapple with. Then, I remind myself that that struggle is not a sign that my lesson isn't going well because my brain would go, "Uh oh, struggle, struggle, struggle. And so I try to then name for myself, what is it they are struggling with? Because that's going to give me information about where to go next. So I expect struggle and design for it. I name what the struggle is. And then the third part is I remind students of the toolkit and strategies they know to handle the struggle and send the message that I believe that they can handle it. And so when I start to focus on that as my job, then control doesn't even have space to be there anymore because I've redefined what success is, I've redesigned what my job is and that I expect students to have a degree of struggle. And so control doesn't have enough space to even be there anymore. Yeah, yeah. I really like that a lot. I mean, it's when I think specifically about ways that um, teachers struggle, you know, I was doing a, a workshop for our program, Phonics Reading and Me, and it's a small group 
uh, literacy program really focused on um, some of the most difficult phonic skills. And one of the things that teachers were saying is like, how do you manage uh, these these small groups, right? That means you, you're you teaching a very small group, but that, that means that there are kids doing something else <laughs> uh, as well. And I think in your book, Mindsets and Moves, Strategies that Help Readers Take Charge, you mentioned this concept of true independence that I think could really help our listeners really understand how to manage and uh, support that independence uh, while we're doing small group learning. Can you talk about what true independence is? Sure. So there was this day, and I can't tell you what the date is, but I remembered as a teacher these moments where we're like forever changed by our students. And I remember looking out and my classroom was relatively quiet, and this was not always the case, that students all looked like they were really busily reading, stopping and jotting on sticky notes, and it looked pretty darn good, to be honest. <laughs> but when I actually like went below the surface and like really listened and really looked, I realized all the students were just copying and mimicking exactly what I had just shown them. And that... I had thought that what my goal was for all of those 27 students to be doing what I told them to do. But what I recognized was every day, the students were just doing what I told them to do. And that's actually not independence. That part of being independent is making choices about when do I use the strategy as a reader? When is it not so helpful? Right. right. It's making choices about how you use your time, the goals you're working toward. And that if we settle for a kind of independence where students really don't have ownership over what they're doing, they're doing it because the teacher told them to, then they're never going to choose to do it on their own when a teacher is not telling them to do it. Instead, they're just doing some people pleasing. And so I think about true independence as historically as the teacher I was making choices and managing what happened in the classroom. I was giving all of the feedback and I was monitoring and like sort of controlling everything that happened. So instead it's thinking about across the year, how do I teach students to take on that work that I was doing? So that if they're truly independent, they're the ones that are making choices. They're the ones that are self-monitoring how it's going and they're the ones who are asking for feedback. And when we create classrooms that way, it's much more likely that students are going to take what we're teaching them and actually use it when no one is there telling them that they have to, they have that ownership. I really love that idea. Um, and I, you know, I think that those are practical things that no matter what, um, they can put them in place no matter what they're teaching. So I, I really appreciate that quite a bit. I love this idea of true independence. And isn't it something that just because students are doing what we've asked them to do, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're thinking. I think that's so important. You you actually even wrote a book uh, with the late Barry Gilmore where you mentioned kind of these three, actually maybe it was four uh, ways to think, right? So um, four types of thinking, problem solving, independent thinking, creative thinking, empathetic thinking. Um, and so we obviously want our students to be thinking all the time, but I, that's a four ways to kind of break that up is pretty interesting. So how can teachers really leverage like problem solving, independent, creative and empathetic thinking um, to ensure that students are intellectually and social emotionally engaged uh, in the learning process? 
Well, I did write a 286 page book to answer that. (laughs) My one to two minute answer for that is, um, I think first, just like simply pausing to ask ourselves, what kind of thinking does this learning experience require of students? And making sure that there is thinking that's required of students. It's not just copying or mimicking or completing that. Like, in a lot of ways, what I'm suggesting here is that completing assignments does not necessarily mean students are actively engaged or thinking. So if I want students to develop empathetic thinking, then there has to be some degree of collaboration going on and some degree of peer reflection and feedback, right? If I want students to develop creative thinking, then we have to have some open-ended opportunities to create something that didn't exist before. Maybe in the world that existed, but not for that first grader or not for that third grader. If I want students to develop problem-solving thinking, then we need to seek out real authentic problems. And those problems could be simply like, I don't know how to read that word. It doesn't have to be like life-changing problems, although that could change the life of that one child. And those problems could be much bigger. Like, how do I research this topic that is really important to me? And how do I get information to help inform me on this topic? So Mm -hmm. I think part of it is just when we think about students' learning experiences, are we designing them in a way that at least one and sometimes multiple types of thinking are, are designed right into the experience? Sure. So you gave us examples of um, problem solving, independent and creative thinking. What is empathetic thinking? So empathetic thinking is the ability to recognize that somebody else has a different experience or perspective and that we can believe them when they say, this is my perspective. This is the way I see this. This is the way I experience this. Mm-hmm. And it's really important to develop that for all the ways us adults are struggling in the world right now, yeah. but certainly also to get a, a, you know along with our peers. So even today, my five-year-old playing with another five-year-old, one wanted to play this game and another didn't, right? And so how do we develop empathy by just understanding that this one is no longer interested in that and he has an interest in this? I can yeah. develop some empathy by saying, that's not true for me but now I know that that's true for you. And then once we have that, we can take on some other types of thinking and problem solve it together. But it's just a way to know one another, to accept that we are not all the same and that's never the goal. Our goal is understanding. Sure, I love that. Thank you so much. So I have to ask you this question. So I was recently with some educators um, in in Maryland, actually, at Geneva Day School. And... um, and we have a really, I asked them a, a question that I ask most of my teachers is, uh, you know, what are you struggling with? What are you seeing out there from a literacy perspective? And they were very honest and I appreciate, they were like, you know, we've got such diversity and skill, right? So some students, for example, who are kindergartners might come to school um, knowing all their letters and maybe even knowing some letter sounds. Whereas some kindergartners or maybe even pre-K children who have no experience with letters at all. And so she said, of course, then all these things in the middle. So my question is around really helping our teachers understand what they can do practically to really support these diverse skills that come into the classroom. Yes. 
So that sounds like a real answer and also a very typical situation. So I just yeah. want to normalize that, yeah. that we have a range of learners in every classroom I have ever had the privilege of working in. Yeah. And the first thing I would want to say to that teacher is like, this is an impressive feat that you know your students well enough to actually know what students are coming in with that that is a form of formative assessment to know that these four students know these letters and these sounds, that these eight students don't yet know the vast majority of the letters. These can recognize uppercase, but not lowercase. You know, these no vowels. Like having that information is actually a vital first step. Yeah. So bravo to that teacher. And if you're like, oops, I'm listening and I don't, I know that there's a range, but I actually don't have that information. There's a ton of really formal assessments you could give and here's my number one favorite practical, you could do this tomorrow. Literally take a piece of paper and fold it into six to eight boxes. Just fold the paper so you have some boxes. And go around and listen to students read, whether those are letters or books, for one minute for each student. And as you identify a need for them, write their name in the box under that title. So the one that says like, you know, no vowels, if that's Tommy, put Tommy's name there and then go next door to Juan and listen to Juan and maybe Juan goes in that same box or maybe Juan needs to go in the box that says knows all vowels and consonants, right? So that part of it is just like quick formative assessment on a simple grid where then I can get a picture of where are the groupings of my students. Yeah. And from there, I want to always remind teachers of something that's so hard to forget, which is that is not a problem that you have a range, like that's not a problem to solve, right? That's information, right? And because when we treat that as a problem to solve, then those students becomes problems to solve. And nobody's child deserves to be treated like a problem, right? So even the students who don't know their letters yet, that's just where they are, right? So once I have that information, then I'm gonna design some small group experiences where students can work either through stations, if stations are something that's available, where there's a different station that students rotate through based on their need. Maybe there's students who are listening and students who are reading while I work with a group, but I'm gonna design it in a way that every student across that week gets some small group instruction with me. And there's a whole bunch of like, but what are they really doing? They might be reading with a buddy. They might be reading on their own. They might be looking at pictures. They might be sorting books. They might be rereading books you've read to them. So you're designing experiences where they get to have joyful reading time while you work with those small groups. Sure. That's awesome. I, I think that's really great, 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 very practical. Again, something they can do tomorrow, um, which is awesome. So I really want to thank you for your time and your expertise, Gravity. It has been a pleasure learning from you today. Thank you, Cheryl. So nice chatting with you.